0: Uh, Please be seated. Let's open up our Bibles. In fact, um, how many of us today have Bibles with us? How many children in particular? Okay, do do we know how to do the sword drill here? Do you remember? Okay. Okay. And then the first one, the first one who uh, gets to the page, okay, I just want you to stand up, okay, and then you're just going to read out. And if more of you, if more than one of you did it once, that's fine. Do you get a candy bar? Uh, well, the thing is, you, you do, but I'm I'm not quite as I'm not quite as generous with the candy. So, <laughs> you you will get you will get Hershey Kisses uh, at the end of the Janes when you've completed all the sermon worksheets. And you can get two. You get one at the end of Sunday school lesson. You get one at the end of the sermon that week. So, okay, swords in sheath. Okay, swords drawn. Exodus chapter twenty. Charge. Uh, no, no, not all of it. I just want you to get to Exodus chapter twenty, and then right. Oh, wow, that was quick. Not even I've got there. Okay. Right, Elijah. Off you go. Um, in fact, because you did it so quick, I might make you read all of them. But um, no, we won't. We won't. Um, can you read, please? Um, can you read uh, verse 17? Excellent. Thank you, Elijah. Thank you very much. So, let me just set the stage out as to where we have been and where we're going, um, because this morning um, is an example of um, everything else that we have been learning up to this point. And therefore, I'm not going to have the opportunity, as I've not had the opportunity most weeks, to sort of extend the lesson, but when we all this into a pdf you can all then peruse it at your own leisure and each lesson will be slightly longer than a Sunday school but this is where we have been so we've been trying to understand over the last few weeks what are those things that shape children in addition to education okay so what are those things that shape children in addition to education in terms of what something you would something you would learn at home something you'd learn at school, something that you'd learn from a book. And so the first week, we understood that if we uh, depart from God's way of doing things, we cannot expect the same result that God promises. So we looked at this idea between principle and promise. An example of this would be in Proverbs, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. Now, there, there are plenty of parents who will say, well, I've decided to bring up my children this way Or I've decided to discipline my child this way. And so what tends to happen is they they choose a way of their own doing, but then still expect the same result that God promises. And the point is, is if you move away from God's way of doing it, you then can, can no longer expect God's result, because God's way and God's result go hand in hand together. That was the first lesson, the principle, the promise. Then the second lesson, we realized... Um, that um, you can learn truth in two ways you can either learn it by listening or you can learn it by not listening and then experiencing the consequence but and we saw that with Adam and Eve that Adam and Eve had the knowledge of death they knew what would happen if they disobeyed God that they would die but Uh, In doing so, they then had the experience of death, which was not a good experience. They didn't learn anything more from the experience than they would have done if they had just listened. And so the experience then shapes the rest of their lives. And it's a bad experience. So children are shaped by their experiences, not just what they're being told, but also the things that they, you know, why is it you, you tell a child, you know, do not touch Um, because it's hot and though they've heard you and though they possibly believe you that the the sort of pull towards experience is so great that they touch it because what they're seeking is experience they're seeking that additional confirmation either way through experience and God has created experience to be a good thing but it can also um, consequentially be a terrible thing and Then thirdly, we looked at that children will be shaped uh, by whether or not they are full or hungry. So if you ever imagine a person who gets a little bit grumpy when they've not had enough drink or enough food, okay, this is just a, it's just a physical example of what it means to be shaped by being empty or full. And so if you imagine your child and your child is growing up, and every single one of your children can, can accept 10 no's, okay? But they can accept 11 without going into debt. So your yeses, in, when it comes to experience, are not worth the equivalent of a no. So one yes doesn't equal one no. One no equals probably the equivalent of five or six yeses. So there has to be way more yeses than there are noes in your children's lives or else every no's a deduction. And, that, and so you have to build them up with yeses. Now, you have to choose your yeses carefully, but that is imitating the Garden of Eden where, there was, where everything was yes apart from one thing. There was only one no, right? Because noes have um, that sort of prohibition. Um, it's a prohibition. No, you can't do it. And of course, you're then fighting against the will of the individual. Whereas with a yes, you're not fighting against the will because they want it and it's yes with you, then there's no tension. But no's always create tension because they're wanting something that you don't want them to have and the no is a very negative drawdown. Okay, so how do you build your children up was the third one. Then last week, we looked at um, we become like what we make. So, Psalm 115 that it is entirely possible that if your children have uh, goals or a way of life that is contrary to the way God is shaping them, in other words, I don't know what my children will become in the future, but whatever they become has to be in line with the steps that God has given them. So, I, you know, we've all heard the stories of how Indian parents, you know, want their children to become doctors or lawyers, right? Because, and and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it becomes bad when you're opposing a future on your children contrary to what God is actually going to choose for them. And that has a negative drawdown in lots of different ways, because you can end up feeling like a failure rather than someone who is actually fulfilling their God-given role. So a Christian farmer plowing his field faithfully is fulfilling his God-given obligation and therefore cannot be more fulfilled doing anything else other than what God has given him. And as Jeremiah says, we are not to presume that we can direct our own steps. God directs our steps. And, and so idolatry is trying to make things to choose our own path. And then, of course, what happens is you become spiritually deaf and blind to the things of God. So you become like what you worship, okay? Idols have ears, but they can't hear, eyes, but they can't see, hearts, but can't, right? You saw that? So this week, we're going to look at um, the idea of what's been commonly called mimetic desire. I want to call it something slightly different, or I'll call it mimetic desire, but I want to understand that there are two different paths here. And I want to go down the Romans 12 route of what's called Latreia, that worship is a way of life. And how does mimetic desire work? So René Girard invented this phrase called mimetic desire from the Greek, meaning imitation. We are, by nature, creatures that imitate other people. So fashion trends are an imitation of a model. So a model will imitate a new pair of sunglasses, and then everyone else copies that model because they want what they have, which is why we read out the 10th commandment, not coveting your neighbor's goods. Why am I drawn to what my neighbor has? Okay, and your neighbor is not just your next door neighbor, but in the context of imitation, your neighbor is anyone that you are modeling yourself on. So if I find myself imitating another person, there's something about that person I find quite attractive. Something that they have, a quality that they have, perhaps the approval that they have. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But all of this started for me um, several years ago when I wanted to understand why people became a fan. So in the UK, soccer, as you call it over here, is really, really big, but I could never understand how a person became a fan of something, right? Because I don't support any one team, so I, I, it took me a great deal of time to sit down and think, why do people become fans? I think people become fans out of two reasons. One, the transcendent third, which imitates the Trinity and which imitates the Christian life. Um, and secondly, because when you have no purpose in life, your time and attention gets directed towards something else. And so all of a sudden you become a fan without even realizing it. You know, all of a sudden I find myself having to watch season eight of whatever it may be, right? Because I've watched the other seven. Or I have to go to this game because I just like watch, right? And you get drawn in because it's, it's something to, to capture your time and attention. But my initial, uh, my initial desire was to try and understand, why do people um, become attracted to ideas that are not their own? Okay, That's what really bugged me as a pastor. So I'm just going to read, no disrespect to Elijah, but I'm just going to read the 10th commandment out again, just to remind ourselves of the prohibition. So God is telling his people that you shall not covet you shall not desire, you should not want your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or, your, or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, it's not saying that you're not allowed to have the same thing. You're not, it's not saying you're not allowed to have a lawnmower just like your neighbor's. But it's saying you're not allowed to covet your neighbor's thing. And most people will interpret this as saying, well, I want what my neighbor has. And I don't think that's what the 10th commandment is actually saying. I think the 10th commandment is a prohibition against the desires of my neighbors. So in other words, you shall not desire the same thing that your neighbor desires. You shall not covet what your neighbor has. Why does my neighbor has it? Well, because he desires those things, and he has them. Hopefully, I'll show you why as we go through, but I want to begin with a, a story, and that is back in 2016, many of you may not know this, but I actually went to Moscow, Idaho, and spent about a month with um, Doug Wilson and uh, time at New St Andrews and up at Logos School in uh, Roman Rhodes Media and Canon Press and all of that, and I was just observing, paying attention and Dr. Edwards um, let me sit in his classes, along with a few others, Mitch Stokes and a couple of others. But I tend to sit, uh, sat, uh, I sat in Mr. Ed, Dr. Edwards' classes more than any others, because of, I w- in the mornings I had more free time, because in the afternoons I was elsewhere. And they were going through a book, which I had read also, and it was a book on the interpretation methods And it was a book split up into five sections, five different groups of people, all who interpret the Bible under a different hermeneutic. That is, under a different rule of interpretation. And his class was broken up into two groups. And I got to sit in on both groups, because they both came into the class on at different times. So I went to the first lesson, and the whole group had to come to a conclusion as to which model, which number, was it one, two, three, four, or 5, was the best model for interpreting the Bible. And then the second group would come in the hour later for their discussion and do the same. What I found was absolutely interesting is that the first group that came in all agreed with each other, but they chose number three. And then the second group that came in all agreed with each other, but they chose number four. And and that's just a wonderful example, I think, of that imitation. That I'm imitating the belief of somebody else because it was uncanny that the whole group believed the same thing. There was a little bit disagreement, but generally, they all fit into the same camp. Why is this important? I'll tell you why, and this is really important for you parents to consider this. I did the same thing with Nottingham University, which has one of the biggest student populations in Christianity in the UK. And I asked a very simple question. Can those students, once they have finished and gone through their university degree and gone through the Christian Union, then manage and live faithfully with Christianity to God outside of Newcastle? Or could they only maintain their Christianity in that environment? Okay, and this is what this is the issue. And what you begin to find is that in mimetic circles, that is communities that are like-minded, that you can move people from, say, somewhere like New Saint Andrews into a church over here in in um, Minnesota because the culture would be similar. But if you were to move them, say, into a different place where there wasn't a culture, there would be immediate struggle because of the internal nature that we all have. The same thing I noticed with Newcastle. You move those students out of the Newcastle body where they had a strong Christian union, where they were together for four years, and then you move them to somewhere like Birmingham or you move them to somewhere like Plymouth or, um, in fact, a lot of these names are in America as well, uh, Manchester and stuff like that, you begin to realize that a lot of these university students don't go back to their home church. And the reason they don't go back to their home church is because they cannot function in their home church like they did at university. There is that memetic change which has happened. And they don't realize that they've adopted the beliefs and cultures of other people because they think they're very individual and independent. But what you begin to realize, if you stand back and watch is that children, the the group that children grow up in, if they move out into another group, it needs to be similar. If not, they're going to have a crisis of faith, at least at some degree. And that is proven time immemorial. You can just see it over and over and over again. So how important is it for us to make sure that we're not just maintaining a beautiful community in the church, but building the right type of culture out there? Well, now we begin to see why it's so important, because of the 10th commandment. So let me, just, um, let me just explain this a little further. <laughs> so the way mimetic desire is often described is like this. You get a child, and you put that child into a room, and that room has 10 toys. And the first child that's in that room has any toy that he can play with or she can play with, whatever they like, for as long as they like. Okay, and so let's just say <clears throat> that child A chooses <clears throat> toy two. Okay, well I don't know who the child is, I don't know what the toy is, it doesn't matter. But child A cho- chooses toy two. Now the way memetic Rene Girard would explain Mimetic Desire <clears throat> would be this way. You then introduce a second child. What toy do you think the second child will wanna play with? Right, he will want to play with toy number two. Why? Because it's already being modeled by child A. It's already being modeled by the first child. In other words, there must be something about this toy which is desirable. There must be something about this toy which which is what I want. Now, here's the drawback. Mimetic desire can explain what happens, but it doesn't explain why it happens. Okay, and this, this is where we have to really pause and think. So what we're going to concentrate on today is why do the desires change? Why do our desires change? Okay, rather than just how they change. So firstly, the Tenth Commandment shows us that people copy other people. We want what other people have. It doesn't tell us why we have to go elsewhere in the Bible to to understand that so here's the first example in Genesis 3 which we began with right at the very beginning of this series if you remember even before this series started we looked at Adam and Eve now Adam and Eve uh, Eve is sat by the tree of knowledge of good and evil or at least very very close to it and the devil Satan puts into her heart or puts into her mind the idea that the forbidden fruit can be taken. And the question is, did Eve have no desire for the forbidden fruit up to that point? Right, difficult one, it's really difficult. The answer that most people draw is yes, Eve had no desire for the fruit she was not allowed until it was modeled to her by Satan, by the serpent. And the moment the serpent gave her the idea, or at least to question the idea, then it therefore created the desire, hence the 10th commandment, that you then want what somebody else says you can have or that they have already. Now, I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure that that is true in every circumstance. It may not even be true in that circumstance, but at least. That's the way that it works. So why do your children desire what they do? So there is also a phrase that doing precedes desiring. And I think this is also true, but it's true in the context of a new heart, but not in the context of a heart that is bound, as we saw last week, by idolatry. Here's why. Jesus had to say to the Pharisees, Do you remember? What do they do with their hearts and mouths? Well, they honor Jesus with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. Okay, in other words, they're doing the right things, but they're not desiring the right thing. So it is possible to do, and it not lead to desiring. It all depends on the condition of your heart. And, of course, the Pharisees, as we saw last week, are are idolatrous people they are they are <clears throat> they have become blind and completely unsensitive to the things of god and so it's very very then hard to create a desire in someone whose heart is not in the right place you first have to do what i said last week in destroy the idol because unless you destroy the idol you're not going to be create a desirable change because desire comes out of the heart, you know? And so as Gordon Taylor used to say that whatever controls the heart wags the tongue, you can tell what people love the most because they talk about it the most, right? It's just a natural, natural overflow. And so desire, mimetic desire, that is copying a model explains what we do, why we do what we do, but it doesn't explain how the desires come about in the first place. So if you want, you turn with me to Psalm 73, and I will show you all over again um, this pattern. So in Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph, and if we go down to... Verse three, I'll just actually I'll just read a a bit. Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. There's the, there's the um, the default here that those who are pure in heart, that the condition of the heart matters in all of this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. So he is reflecting back on something that had happened, which he has now got through. For I was now notice. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Notice how the model, do you see the 10th commandment there kicking in? So the moment his eyes become open to the idea of that they have something that I would also like, his feet then begins to slip away from God. Make sense? So have any of you, wanted something that doesn't exist you think well i've, I've oh yeah oh god, oh, god, oh god what have you wanted that doesn't exist Teleportation. you would like all right okay <laughs> <clears throat> so yeah so teleportation exists in the mind but not in reality yet the point is though you you're desiring something that could be but yet isn't which is a which is a great point. I was more thinking along the lines of, is it possible to desire something you know nothing about? But that is a good point. I would also like the t- teleportation. Yeah, or even flying. A number of things. Yeah, gone. For me, it's pretty much usually what should have been a dream that doesn't actually exist in the real world. Interesting. Okay. So anything you 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 dream about, yeah, that doesn't turn up. Yeah. The point here is, is that almost what anyone comes up with, it's already entered their mind either as an, an idea, or a thought, right? But it's it's impossible to want something that you don't know exists, or you don't know that's actually possible. Someone's got their hand up. Yeah, gone. Alice. Not Alice. Yeah, gone. Oh, to see God. Yeah, we'll see again. Gone. Yeah, what's your yes? OK, and these, these, are great, these are great ideas, but the point still stands. Hopefully, my point hasn't been destroyed by clever children and clever Tyler as well. But the point is, is that um, <clears throat> it's the moment you conceive the idea, you, you believe it's po- It's then possible to desire it. But unless that thought is there or unless the reality's not there. So the, the, the old explanation is no one wanted an iPhone before an iPhone existed. Like no one wanted one. But the moment it is brought in, then suddenly, I want one of those, because it is, it is modelled by someone. Here's an ex- another example for you grown-ups. Um, do you remember when the woman is caught in adultery, and the men are accusing her without any evidence, or at least hearsay evidence, you know, based on their uh, opinions, as it were? And then Jesus bends down and he writes in the sand. Do you remember this? And the question is, well, what did Jesus write in the sand? No one knows. I think he wrote their names. Uh, And the reason I think he wrote their names is because in Jeremiah it teaches that when, uh, when Israel becomes idolatrous to God, their name shall be written in the sand. And here you have a woman called an idolatry. So I think Jesus bends down and he writes their names in his sand. Then he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Right? So he goes right after number one. And why does he do that? This is, this is a, this is, this will explain, if you get this, this will explain why every trend happens, why every trend in belief happens within a church or wherever it may be. And it's because this, the first thrower will model for the rest. What did you throw? Well, because he did. What did you throw? Well, because he did. Or why did you? Well, because he did, he did. He. So let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus goes right after the model because the model is going to set the behavior for the rest of them. And then it says the oldest leaves first. I've always been struck by that. And I think the reason that is pointed out is because I think moral guilt sharpens with age. Right? What, you know, why state it that way? Moral guilt um, so sharpens with age. So the question is, and I'll finish with this, um, now that we understand how our desires change, they change by models. Okay, we have to go to the Greek word of Latreia, which we find in Romans 12, which explains the course of life. So we are not created as as imitators, as mimetic desire would would want you to believe. We are actually created as worshippers, and worship is a way of life. It is not just something that we practice, not just something that we do. It's to shape our whole way of life. This is what Romans 12 is teaching. And within that way of life, we then imitate. So follow me as I follow Christ. Okay? Follow me as I follow Christ. We need to have the right models in order to have the right following behavior. But without worship, without the worship of God first, the condition of your heart is not in the right place. So none of these things actually follow as they should. So in Psalm 11... Um, David has a desire to flee to the mountains, and he's questioning his whole. How can you say to my soul, flee to the mountains? In other words, what he's saying is, is that it is possible to think that you can improve upon your own situation. It's not right, but it is possible for a person to think that. And so the question is, why then, why then do people imitate others? And I really don't believe it's because essentially they want what the other person has, at least how I read scripture. I think the reason, the main driver for why some people or all people imitate others is because what they're actually seeking is approval by means of approval. Because the one thing that a person cannot give themselves is approval you have to get it from someone else. You cannot approve your own work. You cannot approve your own worth. You cannot approve almost anything. You need to get that approval from someone else. So what do you do? You become like someone else and suddenly you're approved because everyone's doing the same thing. Does that make sense? And so now you begin to see how a child's desire will begin to change because if they're seeking approval to be a certain type of person, they're going to join a certain type of group. See how they're being shaped? Okay, so that their whole life is now a life under these desires that is driven. And Thomas Chalmers, Did anyone heard of Thomas Chalmers? If, yeah, okay, he was a mathematician, um, great mathematician, and also a Scottish minister, Presbyterian minister. And he wrote a very famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which basically means that the only time an affection gets driven out of my life, the only time a desire is sort of expelled from from my life, is when a newer and stronger desire comes along. But up until that point, I will continually be driven by the desire that I currently have. And so a man's love for drinking um, can be expelled from his life by his new love for gambling. OK, one one desire is expelling the other. And so what you begin to realize as children grow up is that the things that they are shaped by are these expulsive power of new affections. I like this. Oh, but now I like this. Oh, but but now I like this. Now I want to do this. Now I want to go there. And, and then, you, well, where, where are all these desires coming from? Where they're being modeled somewhere, so you need to understand what your children are seeing and hearing because that's the, things where they're, that's the areas from which they're being modeled. So if you are a parent and you're reading them the right kind of stories and you're exposing them to the right type of media under the right settings, you're able to shape your children, build them up. <clears throat> but worship is what undergirds all of this. It's the Latreia, not the paidia of the Lord, which you get in Ephesians. But it's actually the Latreia, which is worship is a way of life. Education builds on top of that way of life. That makes sense? So I want you to understand, if you can, that the one thing that children, and this builds on everything else that I have said up to this point, that the one thing that children and adults seek as they grow up and as adults grow up is approval. We want want approval. We want to know that we're doing the right thing. We want to be affirmed in some way. And so all of these behaviors that we see throughout Scripture are simply seeking that one thing. Why do you think it it is so good to hear in the parables the phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, because it's, it's, Jesus knows that what a person wants and needs is the approval of God, OK? But that, appro- that desire to want God's approval doesn't come from paideia. It doesn't come from how you educate your children using the sort of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Though that is a good model for education, it comes from Latreia. It comes from worship as a way of life. In other words, that is what shapes a person uh, to be faithful to God and live a life that can deal with interruptions. That c- you can take that person and shove them in a, the most ungodly city, and they can cope. Right, And they can cope because they have been, worship is now a way of life. In other words, they're not trying to get because what is, what's been shaped the most is them internally, spiritually and mentally. So I've got a couple more things to address, but we, we really don't have time. but does anyone want to ask anything at this point before we, um, before we go any further? once I'll finish there. does that uh, Chris?. I think that he's out of Yeah, I, yeah I, so that there was from memory, not from my notes. So that I did that as a, yeah, sorry, but I will find it for you. It's 17th wow, there we go, let's see. Yeah. So Nick. We don't learn these lessons from our children, so we still make the same mistakes that we did to be adults. Right. In fact, I just now you said that, it's reminded me. Children, I want you to pay attention. If, you've, if you're going to pay attention to ev- anything, pay attention to this one thing, okay? And I know that you have paid attention, but this one I really want you to get. Parents as well. When you go home at some point, okay, at some point in the day next week, I want you all to read 1 Corinthians 4, okay? Now, if some of you who are slightly older, sort of 13, 14, 15, getting up, and you're wondering what other people should think about you, you need to understand this thing. Number one, Paul describes the Corinthian church as a courtroom of opinions. I love Paul. I love Apollos. I love Cephas. I love love all of these people. It's it's just a courtroom full of opinions. And then he has to say this to them. He says, it is a very small thing for me to be judged by you or by any human court. I mean, can you imagine calling a congregation a court? I mean, that's quite a, that's quite a harsh thing to say, isn't it? That you're a court. But he says, it's a very small thing for me to be judged by you or by any human court, okay? Then he goes on to say this, and this is the bit we all miss because we all remember the next bit. Um, I'm waiting for God's judgment. It's only God's judgment that matters. But the next bit is also important. He says, I don't even judge myself. I don't even judge myself. I will wait for the Lord's judgment of me. And so what he's saying, and parents, you need to make sure your children understand this growing up. It doesn't matter what you think, but it doesn't even matter what I think about myself. Okay, it doesn't matter what other people think about me, but it doesn't even matter what I think about me. The only thing that matters is what God thinks about me. And if I'm loving God, I'm then loving my neighbor. So there's a natural overflow. But if you miss out that middle bit, and I've seen this happen with countless children, especially as they get older up into their 20s and they're struggling, the thing they struggle with the most is, yeah, I don't care what anybody else thinks, but they are crippled by what they think about themselves. And the, the release from both of those of not worrying about what anybody else thinks and not worrying about what you think is to only be concerned with what God thinks about you. Does that make sense? So go home next week, 1 Corinthians 4, except for all of you, okay? Let me pray. Father God, I want to give you thanks for your word, which is clear, and I pray that, Father God, that with it our minds would become clear and our hearts would become full for love for you, that we would walk faithfully and seek your will above all other things. In Jesus' name, amen.